If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you will have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. This is Dr. Rachel Sutherland, and I'm doing a podcast today for the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee, which I used to be a chair for careers, um, but now have left to become a consultant in acute medicine, specialising in same-day emergency care. And with me today is my colleague, co-founder and co-troublemaker, Dr. John Miles. So I'll just let him introduce himself. Uh, yeah, I'm John Miles. I'm a soon-to-be-retired um, uh, consultant in acute and uh, general medicine. I've been at the Western for over three years now, and during that time, I very much had a remit to establish and enhance the care of patients who require urgent treatment, but not hospital admission. They come under an umbrella of ambulatory care, or more recently, same-day emergency care. And Rach and I are hopefully going to have a discussion to explore some of those definitions, what it means for patients and what it means for us as practitioners and learners. I think that's an excellent introduction. Thank you, John. And the first thing to say is that I had a discussion with Tom Hughes, who's the NHS Emergency Digital Lead, not long ago. And we agreed there isn't really a unifying formal definition of what same-day emergency care is. So I thought it would be good for us to explore a little bit about what same-day emergency care means for us in our practice as acute medics. Yeah, so I think in some ways, yeah, the terminology is, is in a sense irrelevant because whatever you call it, it's about a process-driven uh, method of care. And the theory is that there are people who historically would have been seen by practitioners or referred themselves to emergency departments or to out-of-hours centres or to primary care assessment centres in a very haphazard way, sometimes involving them waiting a large amount of time, and they would have been seen and assessed and sent away with or without some treatment, with or without some investigations, in again a very unstructured and haphazard way. And we've learned over the last 20 years or so that it's possible to smooth out those, that journey for these patients and to provide a more streamlined and succinct, succinct clinical pathway for which they can be seen and assessed. And same day, I think, is a euphemism for seen in a timely fashion. Emergency is probably a euphemism for seen quickly. And care, I think, is probably something that is an aspiration that all of us have, no matter what our branch of medicine is. So ambulatory emergency care or ambulatory care is the other one. And I think same-day emergency care has gained traction partly because it's become trendy in England and with the Faculty of Emergency Medicine. But also, if you try to say ambulatory emergency care as an abbreviation, it sounds like you're being sick, saying, Yuck! 
Whereas saying same-day emergency care as ESDEC sounds pretty cool. And therefore, I think that's why it's gaining major traction, Rach. We do love an acronym, don't we, in medicine? We do. I, I look at it as well, I think, as, as a form of precision medicine. So you're seeing the right person in the right place, and therefore you're enabling yourself to see them in a timely fashion. I think most of our patients are the low-hanging fruit of medicine, whereby um, we can risk stratify them is the first thing. We can protocolize their care. There is potential that this is a serious condition, but the majority of the time, this is going to be something that is a, a, a relatively simple diagnosis, but we need to exclude something that is potentially serious. And so by having structured assessments with protocol-driven care, we can actually make the care experience for the patients and the staff within the units a much more positive one. Because it's not good for anybody, I think, to sit in in chaotic systems of care, which I think we've probably all experienced over the last 20 years or so of medicine. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I think the other thing that is a massive misconception about a service like this is that you would expect one in 10 people who participate in this service to end up requiring hospital admission and a proportion of them to be seriously unwell and require proper old-fashioned emergency treatment. So an example might be a young person with some mild chest pain who turns out to have a really significant myocardial infarction who goes straight from your same-day emergency care centre into an angio room to have, you know, percutaneous coronary intervention. And so the idea that this is, you know, not very ill people who you can see and sort is not necessarily, you know, the, the reality that we see. And I think one of the one of the areas, and it's particularly important area for learning, I think, is the ability to think about the risk of the person you're you're seeing and what the best stratification for their management would be. I think that risk management is probably the key feature or the key skill you need if you're going to be an acute physician in general. But I think mm. specifically the subset of us that take on these, these ambulant care or SDEC roles, which is our particular unit is an SDEC, And I think a lot of people talk about STEC as Ambulatory Care Plus, but actually what it really is, is an approach to risk management that involves a patient in that risk stratification. I think a lot of medicine takes quite a paternalistic approach and also a personalised approach to risk. Whereas what we do, I think, in our unit is to enable the patient, you know, there's a lot of people in their 80s who've spent their lives um, judging risk for themselves so it's all about how you stratify them and how you present that information to the patient. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And also, I think I've been struck over the last um, 12 or 18 months as we've been getting this up and running about how significant dialogue has been just the most about the, <laughs> the management of risk as they do this on a far larger scale for a far larger number of people than most of us who work in the hospital environment could ever contemplate. And I think that there's a really nice dovetailing with a service like this for general practitioners involving a real primary care, secondary care interface of joint risk acceptance and management. And, you know, my conversations with general practitioners have been very much about them having people that they're worried about and they would like an opinion about, but probably not necessarily needing an admission and them not having a great deal of opportunities other than medical assessment units or accident and emergency departments 
to interact with. And that, and I think this has been something that we've really seen some exponential growth in Edinburgh since we've been up and running since last November, eh? Absolutely. And I, I do remember as a junior, I had a consultant in when I worked in A&E rotations and he would go in and say to patients, so what is your accident or your emergency today? Mm. And we, I think we can all see that there's an increasing volume of people who don't meet either of those criteria but we actually haven't within the health service economy created the other environment for this increasingly complex myriad of conditions that we're seeing, you know, because of the knowledge, because of the population, because of the multimorbidity, because of, you know, so many issues. You know, we are we are finding people who don't fit into neat categories. And that's a big part of what general practitioners as you're saying, that they're managing those people that cross boundaries all the time, but we perhaps haven't flexed in secondary care. We've still had our neat little boxes that we've been able to put patients in. So I think it's nice to have a unit, you know, whereby exactly what you're saying, I can't necessarily put my finger on what the risk is. And if a GP is saying that to you, then that unquantifiability means they probably do need input yeah, and care. So- I agree with that completely. I guess people who are unfamiliar with same-day emergency care might level the accusation that are you therefore setting up a unit that is just doing work that should be undertaken in general practice. So it might be a good idea for us to share our experiences of us literally taking that question head on because it has been an accusation that's been levelled against us by you know more than one or, one or two people. And so I guess it it leads us on to how we've gone about recording the people that we've seen in order to, you you know, try and, you know, look at this point. Because I think it is very valid. It's a new service. And are you creating work that actually is genuinely valid or are you actually just setting up an alternative duplicating service? So it's a good time to talk about the data side of it, Rach, I think. Okay, so... Many of you will be aware that I have an interest in medical informatics. And so because we were setting up a unit, we were able to embed this into the structure and function of the unit. And the aim is to create an integrated analytical review of the service in real time. So what we tend to have are probably around about 10 types of presentations. So we started off with having specific headings of the types of patients that come in. So they can come in under a query pulmonary embolus. They can come in with a query deep vein thrombosis. They come in with a query renal colic, a chest pain. And these are, you know, probably the top four, but then there's a few others that sit below that. And we have an other subtype as well. And what we can then do is look at the patients who've then been sent in with a query DVT and we can look at what happens to that patient. So we have a pre-built or pre-existing DVT protocol. We put a backslash into our electronic patient record and it creates a pre-populated template that our team can work to to assess patients. We can extract data from that. And then we also ICD-10 code all of the patients that come through the department to marry up how many of those patients with a query DVT went away with lymphedema or a Baker's cyst rupture rather than an actual DVT. How many had D-dimers? Did we do age-adjusted? All of these types of questions you can begin to look at. So not only are we then able to do high level, what's the breakdown of our service? 
and look at the question that has been laid at us. Are you, are you an intermediary between primary and secondary care and therefore creating a, an additional service rather than taking patients away from you know, front door care in particular? And we can very accurately respond to that and say, actually, all of these patients needed to be seen or a proportion didn't. And so we've built a lovely data set and we've got disease specific registries in progress and we get our ICD-10 codes done pretty much on a same day basis. And we have a dashboard that now works, which shows us some beautiful metrics about patient numbers through the department, our patient to staff ratios. So not just clinical questions answered, but also some logistics about the department so that we can maintain safety of throughput. So that was how I designed the, the data capture, but it's been invaluable in supporting not just the quantity, but the quality of the clinical care that we're delivering and the patients we're seeing. And for the record, our assessment would be that 95% or thereabouts of our work is literally genuinely work that would otherwise be seen by front door services. So I think this may be a good point to move. You mentioned about patient to staff ratios. Yes. So it might be a good opportunity for us to, to talk about workforce because yeah. traditionally um, A&E departments and acute medicine departments have been a gradually increasing multidisciplinary affair with emergency nurse practitioners and advanced practitioners and probably more labels for practitioners than there are for different types of junior doctors. But I think we've had some interesting experiences to share about the nature of our workforce and the differences between our old ambulatory care, advanced nurse practitioner-led and run service, as opposed to our same-day emergency care, advanced practitioner and doctor and consultant and clinical support worker and administrator multidisciplinary modus operandi which I think has been really helpful but also really quite challenging and I think it would be you know it would be remiss of us not to share our dirty laundry and our successes in uh, in that regard. I think that's a that's a, a good way of putting it. I think I think we should start out by saying that change is inherently difficult for people. We moved from a unit that had a really well-established team and they had 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 that for nine years and it kind of was amalgamated. And I don't know whether we paid the right attention to the emotions that were going to happen with the change in that team, John. I don't know what you think about Mm. that. Yeah, I agree. So I think what ESDEC did was become pretty much overtly a definite part of the front door experiencing all the pains uh, that those services go through on on a daily basis and i think the there was a sudden increase in the breadth of clinical activity as well and it's a real tribute to the staff that migrated over that in fact they managed the clinical aspects of these things as well as they did with you know the level of medical support that we we provided i think also we probably underestimated the role of administrators and clinical support workers and general organisers in terms of providing our efficiency of what was effectively our attempt to schedule unscheduled care. And the slack of that under resource was felt probably heaviest by the advanced nurse practitioners Mm -hmm. as opposed to the the medics involved. And I think if we had our time over again, we'd manage a lot of that differently. But I think 
we were able to learn fairly quickly from that and we were also able to identify you know where our strengths and weaknesses were and i think the big lesson i've taken from it has been the real underestimate of the significance of band three and band four support in particular to allow experienced nurse clinicians which is what our advanced nurse practitioners are to perform at their experienced clinical level as opposed to have to do some of the some of the other organizational aspects and i think that that clinical challenge for them would have been made a lot easier if we'd provided a bit of infrastructure but i think that the change has been big and it did involve some staff turnover but i think the people who are you know embracing that now are working at an extremely high level and i think the other thing that's been really encouraging to see is the satisfaction and level of integration and the performance of our trainee advanced nurse practitioners in a new ESDEC environment as opposed to um, the new and you'll be pleased to know that as this is a live um, podcast the ESDEC phone has gone off and Rach has had to go away and perform her consultant duties. So I think you know developing this topic further a blended workforce and our experience is the right way to manage scheduling unscheduled care. I think senior clinical leadership in decision making has been well known and well rehearsed in a variety of other front door settings. I think having a senior clinician being able to have phone contact for uh, a variety of clinicians based in primary care is something that we think we would look to develop. And I think having the major assessment and service delivery by uh, advanced and capable clinical nurse practitioners is proving to be extremely helpful in terms of enhancing the numbers of people uh, that we can see through the department. We do have a procedural aspect to our same-day emergency care and we're in something of a transition period involving the use of medical personnel as opposed to nursing personnel to do some of those procedures. But I think looking forward, there would be no reason why enhanced clinical skills undertaken by non-doctors in such areas as lumbar puncture and chest drain insertion may not be possible. And there are, of course, medical models in the specialties that have trained um, non-medical staff to perform some of these procedures. So I think the blended workforce is here to stay and I think that all will be well. Was that a positive referral, Rachel? That was a positive referral. That was a GP wanting us to get somebody uh, transfused with some iron. So there you go. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> so I've been waffling on about workforce while you were while you were doing that and I think we probably kind of put that one to bed as yeah. it were for the time being. I think um I think we all know that the changing workforce of, of medicine is something we just need to embrace. Mm. And I think we need to value the differences that we all bring with that with the spectrum that we look at the patient in different ways. And that adds a whole holistic picture to the patient. So um I think we really do need to make sure that we we value, you know, the way that we look at patients differently. Mm. And I think that's something I've definitely learned from coming through uh, this ESDEC experience. We're at 10 months now, are we, John? Yeah, I think? We are. absolutely. Um, I think the other thing, you know, talking about learning, I think I, there is no doubt look, looking forward that some kind of same day acute emergency or ESDEC, as I think it's probably likely to be called, will be um, a part of every single um, hospital-based unit um, throughout the country, um, fast forwarding five or 10 years. 
Uh, and there will obviously be differences to the ones located in Fife, Edinburgh and Glasgow as opposed to the ones located in Shetland, Fort William and Harris. Um, but, you know, the principle will be pretty much the same. And therefore, I think this is proving already to be an extremely exciting train op training opportunity for uh, the IMTs and also the registrars who are duly accrediting in, in acute and their specialty medicine. And I think I've also, as I alluded to earlier, been really impressed by the way our trainee advanced nurse practitioners have been able to maximise their opportunities as well. I think that a lot of people, even within acute medicine, would say that SDEC or ambulatory care is a bit marmite. You kind of love it or you hate it. But actually, all the things we've talked about, the experience of working in an extended multidisciplinary team, managing risk, the interface between primary and secondary care is neater, I think, than a lot of other secondary care areas. But the actual ability to understand the evidence base behind the protocolized medicine and when to deviate from that, that's a really important part of any medical curriculum and any, any medical experience in terms of trainees. So I think it's a fantastic environment to safely experience the need to protocolize and when not to protocolize. And, ma and to manage risk. And so I think you get very little opportunity to, to really make decisions in the same way that you do in these environments at, at an IMT level, uh, in the supported way that we do within our environment. And I think that's why our unit has worked for the trainees. We've had a lot of positive feedback, I think, from, from the trainee experience here, which is fantastic. But not everything in the garden is is rosy and, you know, we've had our struggles like everyone else and I think it would be important for us to be honest about those sorts of things. The notion that ESDEC might be the panacea for curing the four-hour target in the city has been shown to have been a flawed one, uh, despite our assurances that, that it wouldn't impact on the four-hour target. <laughs> And I think the second thing is that, you know, it has provided us with challenges in terms of developing a very different type of service at speed whilst maintaining a workforce to deliver all of those things. And I think it may be worth our time discussing both of those in turn. I, I think, you know, scheduling unscheduled care is very good for reducing waiting times. But, you know, flow through a system and each bit of that system, you know, being part of a, of a patient journey, particularly for people with multiple complex diseases, is outside of an SDEC remit. So a frail older person's journey will not be influenced by the presence or absence of same-day emergency care that often. Not exclusively, but, but not that often. I don't know what your thoughts are about that, because you've had probably greater experience of working with frail older people from a specialty point of view than me. Yeah, so I have a subspecialty training in stroke medicine. And I think, you know, there are always specialty elements where you think that, oh, I could see how that could work. So for example, with stroke, the minor strokes or the TIAs or the funny do's, the funny neurological do's, you can see how that could sometimes quite neatly fit into an SNEC environment. But actually, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of patients who are coming in with DVTs, for example, you know, especially when they're frail or they're older, you know, there are challenges about our pathways which don't necessarily meet those patient-specific needs. And I think a few of our AMPs have really been advocates for specifically the frail and the older people because 
we had systems that we were, you know, we've been playing with changing some of our structures and about bringing people back the next day. And they've quite rightly voiced, you know, well, actually, that's really difficult for somebody who's frail and it's difficult to get out of the house. And actually, it's a much neater pathway for them to do everything in a one even if that one is six hours, which our younger patients would rather go home and come back the next day. So I think it's about being the ability to be a little bit agile in the way that you approach those problems, but also, you know, not trying to be all things to all men because you're not going to you're not going to achieve that. And there's been a lot of noise when we started about frailty aspects, and I'm not sure that's the right pathway for frail patients. I don't think the pace and the speed and the way that, you know, we're approaching problems necessarily it fits with the remit of multimorbidity. Um, don't know what yeah, you think. I, I mean, I agree. Um, on the plus side of it, we're, we're beginning to, and I think this is, would be a really important area for our growth, for quite a number of the period of times, and they wanted to broker a day of investigations. And we basically provided the host services for that person to have an echocardiogram in the morning and have a CT chest abdo pelvis and then go back home and then the hospital at home team would pick up on the results and all of that sort of thing. And that struck me as a really nice synergy about utilising our facility to host and to provide a really good pathway for a frail older person to have the majority of their care still done very close to or, or in their home. And I think there's some real mileage for us going forward to increase our links with those services. And from a workforce and, de- workforce and development point of view, think about joint appointments, particularly with advanced nurse practitioners who've got experience in hospital at home and in ESDEC environments. And it's using that different bits of your brain. I think uh, going at the pace of something mm. like an acute facing unit it can, you know, I think that's why a lot of people get burnout. Whereas if mm. you, you have those joint appointments, the brain can switch between different paces. And I think that's really important and why a lot of specialty doctors enjoy a day of acute medicine, mm. you know, actually go back to their specialty. And, and I think it works the same for the AMPs as well. And I think, I, I think, you know, we've seen, you know, nursing staff in front door areas, you know, struggle with resilience and staff turnover in their clin- those clinical areas is much greater than it is in, in other specialty areas. Advanced nurse practitioners also have a much more blended job description, a bit like we do as consultants, is probably going to be really important for, you know, retention and development. And I feel really strongly that you know, medicine and doctors have a major advantage with the infrastructure of a syllabus and a curriculum and an annual record of clinical appraisal and a certificate of completion of training. And advanced nurse practitioners and clinical support workers really do not have that same syllabus and infrastructure of educational development. And I think one of the really lovely byproducts I would like to see coming out of ESDEC growth over the next five or 10 years is that real systematic development and recognition of clinical skills of advanced nurse practitioners to allow them to develop their banding based on their clinical competencies as well as their leadership and management competencies. Yeah, I think that importance of enabling nursing development clinically, not just managerially. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We've alluded a lot, John, to the diagnostics. We've said about all these things we do. And I think this whole project is underpinned by a fantastic relationship with our 
diagnostic team, so mainly for us, our VTE investigations, so Doppler and CT. We do get help as well from Echo and, and, and folk like that when we ask. But it's really the imaging guys that have been fantastic, haven't they? Yeah, they've been they they've been absolutely great, and I think also we've received similar support from uh, you know ancillary services like domestic uh, domestics and portering. And I guess one of the other big lessons that we learned about developing this service, as you should do with any service, is the importance of stakeholder engagement as much as possible. And I think we're also pretty grateful to our primary care colleagues for the suggestions that they've come up with that we've been able to integrate. I agree, if you do not have a good relationship with your clinical director of radiology, and I think also importantly your service manager for radiology, that you are going to struggle in terms of the demand. And of course, we set up our service during the time when thrombotic complications of vaccines suddenly became like a real thing. Do you remember the kind of 17 God, headaches yeah. and uh, uh, and 15 swollen <laughs> legs and 10 chest pains yeah, post-vaccine yeah. that we were beginning yeah. to see kind of in the in the summer months? Yeah. And without without a sustainable solution, um, and I think it's probably a, a, you know I think the realization that planned time slots on a daily basis have remarkably improved our efficiency of managing these people as opposed to the phone call, could you fit in 15 today or seven tomorrow or what have you. I think that smoothing, knowing what our limitations are and adjusting our pathway accordingly. Mm. So I think it's a dual pronged, but it it requires a relationship, I think, at the bottom of it. We don't want to overload them and they Mm. want to accommodate us. So if you come at it from those angles, I I think that's what's really helped it to work. And I think, I know I keep going back to the data, I'm a boring data buff, but actually, you know, having that embedded data gives the diagnostic team that clear, we have this upswing. And how long is the upswing going to stay with us from COVID? You know, mm-hmm. there is an increased thrombotic risk in COVID infection. You know, there's a lot of discussion, I think, and a lot more work to be done about the vaccine in particular and specifically mm-hmm. vaccine associated headache. And I think that will all rumble down in the next couple of years. But by having the data embedded, it gives that diagnostics an earlier vision of we've got an increasing rate of CTPAs. That's happening all over the country. Mm. But this is our particular rate associated with the amount of COVID that we've got going around. And so, you know, it's it's really important that that, that embedded embedment happens, I think. So um, I think that's been also a a benefit of the systems we've had. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think we've covered, you know, the rationale, um, some of the definitions. I think we've covered a lot of the processes. We've covered workforce and the opportunities in education for development. Um, But it's vitally important that we think about with that service and also patient related outcomes. Do you want to outline, I guess, the mechanism by which we review our governance in terms of morbidity and mortality, and then also how we collect data from our patients and how that's helped us grow as a service? So currently, we collect every single patient who dies within 30 days of an appointment into ESTEC, and we thought the number would be low. We look at it quarterly. And we review every single death within 30 days of ESTEC. And as you as you might, you know, expect, most of those are our VTE class of patients. 
often with significant diagnosis underlying such as metastatic cancer for example mm. so there haven't been any any adverse deaths um so thus far in the unit being opened but we we review that as i say on a quarterly basis Morbidity within Essex is a little bit more complicated to calculate. We've started by looking at our reattendance rates because we think that's probably quite important. So we look at anybody who's had more than one attendance into a any emergent area. So that's A&E, our ARU trolleys area, which is a medical admissions area, or a renew attendance to Essex as well. And we go through those to look for, you know, themes and we're, we're still trying to build what's important in those. And what's, you know, where we really focus is anybody that's really had more than two. So we get the odd three or four recurrent mm. attenders. And, and there are themes within that that are coming through. So people with functional neurological illnesses, as you might imagine, actually some of our chest pains where we don't necessarily, you know, troponin negative chest mm. pain is a bit of a feature there as well. And we've re- we've rebuilt some of our relationships with the cardiology team to look at, are they coming through the right service, therefore? And there's a smattering of other conditions. But having that awareness that people aren't necessarily being put into the right service mm. is really important. And most of the people that are dotting around these services, they weren't appropriate to come to ESNEC mm. in the first place. Yeah. I think it's important to say. But reviewing that is really, really important. Mm. And we're just drilling down into a little bit more granularity about that. The patient feedback point's really important. And like John was saying, you know, people can think this is the most fantastic service in the world, but if patients aren't putting that word out there, Mm. then the service isn't a good one. So the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh and London had a a guideline for SDEC quality criteria. And one of them was to gather patient feedback. So we currently, the aim is to is to get 5% of patient feedback. We're currently hitting about 15% at the moment. And we have a generic form, which was designed by the Ambulant Emergency Care Group, which you can download from the internet. And we try and give that out to all patients. And we collect it back anonymously in a box and we collate that and we look at the feedback that that comes back. We're in a process of evolving that form at the moment because I think it's quite an old form. It's been around for about 10 years and we think we need to probably customise that a bit to our specific unit to get the most benefit out of the energy and, Mm. and work that we're putting into collecting this data. And I think a really good example of what happened was the first two weeks we opened, <laughs> we didn't have the heating turned on properly. And so the patients were just saying, it was really good, it was really quick, but it was really cold. <laughs> and actually we were able to use that feedback to say, we really need to sort the heating out. I think it was only like a week's worth of being cold actually, mm. but it was so powerful in getting estates down to sort out the heating issue in the unit. And actually, you know, there's a few examples of that in terms of we had issues with time being a feedback. You know, I was waiting around a while. I didn't get much information about what was happening. So we've introduced within our dashboard an average time in department and Mm. whether we're working to an average time that day or not. And that's just a ballpark figure. So when patients come in, they know, okay, the average time in the department is 150 minutes. Mm, mm. So, you know, you psychologically then yeah. that's the average time. And I think that's very helpful for patients, actually. Yeah. It has shown an improvement in the outcomes as well. 
Yeah. So it's a pretty nice place in which to work, isn't it? it I mean, is. you feel, you know, you feel, um, particularly if you do a long day, you know you've done a long day by, by the end of it. But actually, um, we are seeing on average 40 to 50 patients a day, 1,000 patients a month, including all different types of contact, including telephone. Uh, and therefore, um, that's pretty much double what our expectations were when we first set this up. Mm -hmm. So I think establishing proof of principle is good. Um, where do you think the most important points are to go next for us? So I I think the next the next probably five months are focusing on the challenge we're about to face mm. in the winter. Yeah. I think we could probably really improve our pathways when it doesn't work in SDEC. Yeah. So when a patient ends up admitted, I don't think we're slick in terms of that admission process. And there's yeah. a few barriers about that. There's a digital barrier in terms of our electronic prescribing mm. system. Um, and then there's a capacity issue. And then there's the COVID point of care testing yeah. issue yeah. that makes that process just a bit clunky. So mm. I think... Um, I think we're facing a winter where we will have more patients that come through SDEC that end up requiring admission. Mm. And so that process needs to be slicker in terms of how we interface between the different services. Yeah. I think we need to work on a bit of GP education. I'd like to work on the relationships. I'd like to get GPs into the department mm. to come round and yeah. see the place and just get a bit more of a feel of what they're sending patients into because yeah. it is new. And because of COVID, we haven't had that, that yeah. interfacing. And I think the third big thing is about integrating point of care ultrasound into mm. our practice. Mm. So I think that over the next year is a really important focus to align ourselves with the evolving importance of the ultrasound probe in clinical practice. Dump the stethoscope. Pick up the ultrasound probe. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that seems like a decent point for which we can um, we can terminate. Don't you think, Rach? Absolutely. Thanks everybody yeah. for listening. <laughs>